Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23 today, talking about the fullness of deity in Christ Jesus. Let's begin to read in verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Lord, we thank you for the glory of the gospel. What an incredible truth it is, Jesus, that you willingly went to the cross for us, and Father, that it pleased you that the fullness of deity should dwell in the Son, and that he should be draped in humanity, and that he should die for our sins. Lord, it's glorious, it's amazing. And I ask that today, Lord, you would remind us of the precious value of our salvation. I ask that you would remind us of how precious the blood of Jesus Christ is by which we have been redeemed. That you would stir in our hearts afresh the reality of the cross. That we would be spurred on this morning, not only to living a gospel life, but to preaching the gospel message. And Lord, if there be anyone in here today who has not been saved, Jesus, would you save them today? Would you bring them to the place of repentance by revealing your love and your mercy and your grace and your loving kindness to them? And would you draw them to yourself this morning as you teach us the truths of your word? We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys will remember from our previous studies in the book of Colossians that this letter was written by Paul to the church in Colossae in order to combat some false ideas that were floating around the community about Jesus and that were beginning to work their way into the church. And the way that he combats the false ideas concerning Jesus Christ is to simply reveal the truth of Jesus Christ. And so we just finished several weeks of studying verses 15 through 18. One of the clearest passages in all of Scripture as to the true identity and the sure deity of our Savior Jesus Christ. You'll also remember that the false ideas that were floating around, we refer to them as a Colossian heresy, basically came about through Greek philosophical thought and legalistic Judaism. Now, we haven't dealt with any of the influence of, influences excuse me, of legalistic Judaism yet. We'll get to those in chapter 2. But we have seen, as Paul combats it, the Greek philosophical thought beginning to penetrate the theology concerning Jesus Christ. For example... Those in this community begin to believe that because God is holy and perfect in all his ways, he can never have anything to do with an earth that is not holy, where there is wickedness. Not only could he not have anything to do with it, but he never could have created it. A holy, perfect God never could have created this fallen world. And so they postulated that there must have come from God a series of emanations, something which came forth from him, of spirit beings who all possessed a little bit of divinity, a little bit of deity, but not the fullness thereof. 
And they continued in their postulation that eventually there was an emanation that was still close enough to God that it had the power to create, but far enough from him that it could create an evil world. And how they worked Jesus into that theological framework is they said, well, Jesus is just one of those emanations. Just one of many emanations. And they saw those emanations as the bridge between fallen humanity and God. And so they said, we've got to go through these series of emanations, Jesus being one of them, a very important one, but just one of many. We see parallel thoughts in our community today. We've discussed this. The Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus is a God, not the God. New Age thought, uh, even Islam, so on and so forth, that would not deny the historical truth of Jesus' existence, but they would seek to dethrone him from his place of preeminence. The Greek philosophers had a term that they used to describe the little bits of deity, the little bits of divinity in all these emanations. If you would put them together, it was called the fullness of divinity, or pleroma in the Greek. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but you get the idea. In the Greek, it was the idea of the fullness of divinity. If you took all these emanations and you gathered them up, there you would have an accurate portrayal, portrait, manifestation of the one true God. But it would take a gathering of those many emanations, uh, divinity being dispersed throughout them. Now what Paul says in verse 19 is no. He says it is the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness dwell in Jesus. He combats that false philosophical thought by saying it is the good pleasure of the Father that all the fullness of deity dwell in Jesus Christ. He reasserts that in chapter 2 verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so again we see here in the book of Colossians the idea that everything that we need to know about God is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. He is the exact representation of God. He is God in the flesh. It says there that the fullness of deity dwells in him. The idea of that Greek phrase is to be at home permanently. In Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in him permanently. There are even today some false ideas concerning the dual nature of Jesus. That he's fully man and yet fully God. For example, second, uh, second century Corinthian Gnosticism taught that at the baptism of Jesus Christ, deity came upon him, and then at the cross of Jesus Christ, deity departed from him. There are those today that believe he is part God and part man. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches by the very nature of the language in this verse that the fullness, the pleroma, the absolute fullness of deity dwells permanently in the person of Jesus Christ. All the attributes, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, so on and so forth, reside in him. They always have been in the preexistence of Jesus Christ in him. Remember, he was not created. He always has been. And when he was draped in humanity and born of a virgin, he did not surrender any of his divine attributes or qualities. Rather, there came fully God 
joined fully man in one being. It's very important to understand in theology that Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. Very important. In order to save us, he had to be both. Why did Jesus have to be a man? He had to be a man because he was going to die a substitutionary death for man. And so in order to be an acceptable substitution for you and I, he had to be a human being to die in our place. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and I, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So we see that Jesus Christ took on humanity, conquered devil upon the, cro- the devil upon the cross, and then just a few verses down, in Hebrews 2, 17, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, like you and I, human, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to become a human, human being to make propitiation for our sins. To propitiate means to satisfy the wrath and the standard of God. To satisfy God's standard and God's wrath and his judgment for you and I, he had to become like us to die that vicarious substitutionary death. But he also had to be fully God, fully man, and fully God. If he was not fully God, then there is no way that he could have bared the fullness of the weight of our sins upon him. No finite being could ever take the weight of the sins of the world upon him. Beyond that, the sacrifice for our sins had to be perfect, you understand, right? To pay the price for us, he had to be without sin or he would have paid his own penalty. He had to be without sin in the clear declaration of the Bible. And even our experiential observation is that there is nobody who is without sin. Only God is without sin. And so Jesus had to be God to bear the weight of the sins of the world, to be sinless. And it says in Jonah 2.9 that salvation is from the Lord. The Lord is the Savior. There is nobody else that could deal with the wretchedness of me other than God himself in Christ Jesus. But he had to be both, we see. Fully God and fully man. Because what man needed was a mediator. A mediator between God and man. We needed a mediator who could represent us to God and who could represent God to us. And so he became a man our high priest, to represent us to God. And he always has been God, to represent God to us. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He's the only one that could ever fulfill the requirements of being a mediator between God and man, a bridge between God and man, and of dealing with our sin. And so that's what 1 Timothy 2.5 says. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. And so in this, Paul utterly destroys the Greek philosophical thought that was floating around. No emanation could ever 
hold within itself the requirements to be the Savior. No angel, no man, no created thing, no emanation could ever fulfill the requirements to save us. By the way, this amazing, mysterious miracle that we can't really get our minds around of him being fully man and fully God in one being, in theological phraseology, it's called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. The union of two natures in being one. The fact that Christ possessed both. The nature of God, the nature of man, in one single person. Now, don't fall into the theological error of thinking that at any time Jesus surrendered any of his divine attributes or qualities. Turn to Ephesians, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Those of you that are in home group, recently looked at this passage. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Paul exhorts us in verse 5 of Philippians 2, saying, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. When it says that he emptied himself, people often read that and they make the mistake that, oh, Jesus surrendered some of his power or those divine attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, uh, omnipotence, so on and so forth, when he was draped in humanity. That's not what this passage is teaching. It's teaching that there came a change in role and in status. You'll remember that Jesus said when he was on the earth, I do only that which the Father tells me to do. He was fully submitted to the will of the Father. There came in order to accomplish our salvation a humbling of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, by taking on the role of a servant in the form of a man being obedient to the point of death upon a cross. But in no time did he surrender his essential nature. It is a logical impossibility for God to ever be any less than he is. When he was born of a virgin, he did not become any less God, but the fullness of God took on the fullness of man in the hypostatic union joined in one being. He humbled himself, though he was fully God, to go to the cross to save this foolish man. That is wonderful, amen? Back to Colossians. It says concerning that in verse 19, once again, it was the Father's good pleasure. It pleased the Father that this should be true of Jesus Christ. It was the Father's good pleasure. Why did it so please the Father? Well, there's another time, this time in the Old Testament, where speaking of Jesus, it says that the Father was pleased concerning the incarnation. Isaiah chapter 53, very familiar with it. Isaiah 53, verse 10. We have it on the PowerPoint. 
It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. Speaking of Messiah, Mashiach, Jesus, Yeshua. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Listen to how much God loves you today. The Father was pleased to crush Jesus Christ upon the cross if he would make himself an offering in the place of you and I. It says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus endured the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. The joy is that we might be forgiven of sin, washed white as snow, made spiritually alive, be connected with God, and have the promise of eternal life. That is the joy of God. And so God is begging you today through Christ Jesus, be reconciled to him. It is the pleasure of the creator of the world that you be saved by Jesus' work upon the cross. It's absolutely wonderful. Verse 20 says it very clearly. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, that is the Father, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Through him to reconcile all things. What does it mean to be reconciled? You know what it means to be reconciled? Very simple. To restore friendly relations between. To restore friendly relations. Jesus' death upon the cross is that which allowed our relationship with God on the level of friends to be restored. To bring peace between fallen man and a holy God. It's absolutely necessary because as you see in verse 21, it says, And although you were formerly alienated, we were alienated from God, hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. We were alienated, separated from God, hostile in mind. That is the things and the thoughts that dwell in us were against the will and the precepts and the plan of God, me and you, us together. And we were engaged in evil deeds. But it pleased the Lord because he loved us so much to crush Jesus Christ, to deal with the evil deeds, to pay the price, and to deal with the sinful nature, that we might be transformed. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things pass away, all things become brand new. But it's necessary for that to happen for every person. Until that happens, it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that we are the enemies of God. Now, you may be here today and you're not a Christian. You say, wait a minute, that's horrible. How could you call me an enemy of God? I have nothing against God. You may not have anything against God, but God has something against you. It's sin. It's sin. And that's why Jesus was draped in humanity, humbled himself and went to the cross to deal with the sin issue that God would no longer have to hold it against us. You see, he's going to hold it against someone because he's a righteous God. He's a righteous judge. He's perfect in all his ways. He won't sweep it under the carpet. He won't blink his eye. He won't turn away from it. It must be dealt with in his righteousness. And so either today, Jesus Christ is going to be the one who takes the punishment for your sin upon the cross or at your passing from this earth, you will be the one 
to take the punishment. The choice is wholly and completely and totally yours today. What will you choose? How are we reconciled to God? How was this accomplished? It says here again in verse 20, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then in verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body. Here again, we see why Jesus had to be fully man. Because for the forgiveness of sins to be accomplished, for us to be reconciled, there had to be a fleshly body because there had to be blood. Christians are very weird, huh, if you don't have context. You come into a church and and they're singing songs about the blood of the Lamb. And you're looking around going, oh my gosh, are they going to sacrifice a lamb in this place? This is disgusting. And then they start singing about the blood of Jesus. We have a song we sing all the time, one of my favorite songs. Pour the blood of Jesus over me is the refrain. Pour the blood of Jesus over me. Pour the blood of Jesus over me. And if you're not a Christian, you look and you listen and you go, oh my gosh, how do I get out of here? This is sick. This is nuts. It's very weird if you don't have a context. So let me give you some context. Let me give you some context. Why does the Bible speak about blood? Why was it necessary for Jesus to spill his blood? And how does that accomplish for us forgiveness? Well, look on the PowerPoint at Hebrews 9.22, where it says very clearly there in the word of God that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, period. Why is that though? Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, again on the PowerPoint. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Listen to what the Bible says here. The Bible says that life is contained in the blood. We know that's true. If you drain the blood from your body, you don't live anymore. I don't care what you put in there. You could put in there high-octane fuel. You could put in there spaghetti sauce. It doesn't matter. If you drain the blood from your body, you no longer have life. The life is in the blood. Now, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, says the wages of sin is death. The price of sin is death. But the free gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. The price of sin is death. If that's what sin costs, then what could the payment be? It's logical. A life. If sin costs us death, physical death, the Bible says very clearly that physical death entered the world because of the sins of Adam and Eve. Physical death and eternal death, which is eternal separation from God in hell. The, the, the result of sin is death. Therefore, the payment for sins could only be a life. And the blood is that which gives life. The life is in the blood. There we have the basis for the Old Testament sacrificial system. And there we have the basis and the validity for Jesus Christ dying upon the cross, spilling his blood from his veins, and thereby giving his life as a payment for the death that was due to us. Do you understand? He gave his life for us, and we have peace now with him by the blood. Romans chapter 5 speaks of it, verses 8 through 11. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, 
And now while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Justified means to be declared innocent and righteous. Having now been justified by his blood, it only happens by the blood, our legal standing before God, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Hooray! For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's why Jesus then rose from the dead. Death could not hold him down. He didn't stay in the grave because not only was he fully man, but fully God. And so he rose from the dead that we would not only have the forgiveness of sins, but we would have life and that more abundantly. Amen? And not only this, verse 11, but we also exalt in God. I'll go back to verse 11, please. Still Romans. We also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We exalt in God because of the work of Jesus Christ. This is why we sing things like, oh, the precious blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ being the Lamb. Remember when John the Baptist saw him, we have a historical account where John Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so his blood is precious to the Christian. Uh, Not in a symbolic way, in a very real way. And so it says in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Wouldn't you be flattered if God came along and said, you are so precious to me that I am going to buy you with silver and gold. (gasps) We don't, don't pretend like you don't think that's wonderful. That's wonderful when a man gives a woman a, a ring and it's gold and it has diamonds or it's silver and diamonds. The woman goes, oh, he loves me. If God were to come along and go, you are worth gold and silver to me, we would go, God loves me. But it's far more wonderful than that because those things are perishable. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you and me, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, for the debt of your sins, if you have repented and turned from sins and turned to him and said, Jesus, I understand that you poured out your blood for me on the cross. I accept the forgiveness that you won for me there. If you have done that, then your hope is in God. He has redeemed you. He has bought you back with that which is imperishable, the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the most precious thing in all the universe, the blood of of Jesus Christ. And that is why the Christian sings, pour the blood of Jesus over me. Because in his blood there is cleansing. In his blood there is the promise of eternal life. And so we sing it, sing it figuratively, though it happens in our life in a very real way. Amen? The blood of Jesus Christ. And so, we have our past condition given to us there in verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile and engaged in evil deeds, there's our past condition. If you're a Christian, that was our former description. And now, verse 20, 
Through him we have been reconciled to God, having made peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. Having made peace. The whole world is crying out for peace. Everybody's looking for peace. The UN is talking about peace. All the nations are talking about peace. We're looking for peace in the Middle East. We want peace in our own country. We want peace in our homes. But the most longed for thing in all of humanity is peace in the heart. And the only reason that man's heart ever lacks peace is because there is discord with God. Discord with God. Because we haven't been reconciled. And when we're reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ, peace is made. And literally in the Greek there, to make peace means to be bound together. We are bound together with God. That's how he intended it at creation. He was in the garden with Adam and Eve and they walked in the cool of the garden. And now, through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we have peace. We are bound together with God in the way that he intended it to be. And it is absolute and complete once and for all total reconciliation. And that is what Paul is wanting the church in Colossae to know. No emanation, no other spirit being, nothing created could ever achieve what Jesus Christ alone achieved on the cross. It is only through him. I want you to notice that reconciliation goes beyond just you and I. Look at the end of verse 20. Last part of verse 20 says, Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So powerful was the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross that he redeems the entire universe from the curse that was put upon it by God at the fall of man. We read in the opening chapters of Genesis that God created everything and he looked and it was very good. The only thing that wasn't very good was man. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I shall make a helpmeet suitable for him. He made women folk and then everything was very good. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for my wife. (laughs) But he looked at creation and it was very good until the fall of man. And then there were consequences and a curse was put on the earth. And we see the second law of thermodynamics that everything winds toward chaos and away from order and loses energy in the universe as a result of that curse. And the cross of Jesus Christ not only redeems us and reconciles us to God, but it redeems the whole of the universe from the effects of that curse. And so there is coming a day where the whole world and the firmament will be transformed because of the cross of Jesus Christ. When is that? It's at His coming. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, after the tribulation period, He returns to the earth and He establishes the millennial kingdom. When the king returns to the earth as the conqueror, the one who has already given himself to buy back to redeem the world. When he returns to establish his kingdom, everything is put back in correct order as he rules and reigns. Everything. For example, the animal kingdom. Look at this description of the millennial kingdom in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. Concerning the millennial kingdom after the return of Jesus Christ, it says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. 
and the calf and the young lion and the fat lean together, and a little boy will lead them. Look at the millennial kingdom. The wolf is no longer going to prey upon the lamb. The curse has been removed. They're buddies again, just like in the Garden of Eden. This is wonderful. The leopard lies down with the goat. He doesn't want to eat it. And the calf with the young lion. And a little boy leads them. I just see a little boy leading these crazy animals going, Yeah, the Lord has come back. Verse 7. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Won't that be cool? Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like, like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. Can you imagine? And the weaned child will put his hands in the viper's den. The curse is removed. The earth is restored. And little kids come and stick their hands in the viper's den. <laughs> Look at this one, Dad! He's awesome! Verse 9. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the work of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's more. Not only the animal kingdom, but changes in the earth's vegetation. Isaiah 55, 12 through 13. It says, For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Again, the millennial kingdom. The mountains and the hills will break forth in shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. That's at the coming of the Lord. Verse 13, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which shall not be cut off. The curse is removed and there's no longer thorns and thistles in the vegetation. But the myrtle and the cypress and the trees go, oh, the Lord. And the mountains shout and it's an everlasting memorial to the presence of God on earth. There's more. There will be changes in the solar system. Isaiah 30, verse 26 says, At this time the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days. On the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. The fracture of his people and the bruise he has inflicted? That's the tribulation period. He's speaking there of the nation of Israel. And when is it healed? When are they bound up in healing? At the coming of Mashiach, Yeshua the Messiah, at his second coming. And everything will be put back in correct order. Changes in the physical well-being of man. Look at Isaiah 29 and 33. On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And 33.24, And no resident will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. There's no more sickness. The curse has been removed. The blind will see. The deaf will hear. And then there's one more wonderful description in Isaiah 35. I'll just read it to you if you want. The whole chapter of the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 35, it says, The wilderness and the, de and the desert will be glad. And the Arabah, that is the desert, will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely. And rejoicing with rejoicing and shouts of joy will take place. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. 
They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God, the second coming. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, the tribulation. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And the scorched lamb will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. And a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing will flee from them. Look at the things that the cross of Jesus Christ has accomplished. Look at how precious the spilling of his blood is. And let me ask you, Christian, are you living in the light of the cross? It is so powerful. It is so wonderful. We have been so thoroughly redeemed and will experience such wonderful things. Are you living in the light of the cross? Are you living in this gloom and this funk and this woe is me and all caught up in your junk? Be free from it today in the name of Jesus. You have been reconciled, redeemed. Peace has been made. Let the joy of the Lord be restored to you today. Amen? The greatest work of the cross is where we finish in our text. Back in Colossians Look what it says in verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, that is before the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Listen, it it is a common pitfall of the flesh and it is the obvious tactic of Satan to get you feeling guilty, dirty, ashamed, and condemned. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you are already holy, blameless, beyond reproach. It is already accomplished. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 that you are already seated in the heavenly places with the Lord. We must complete this lifetime, but the work of the cross is finished. To tell us, Jesus said upon the cross, it is the finished work of the cross, and because it's done, God already sees you through the lens of the cross. He already sees you through the lens of the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, don't fall into the pitfall of the greedy, selfish flesh and don't succumb to the tactics of the enemy with guilt and condemnation and the weight of shame. These things are not from the Lord and they ought not to be prevalent in the life of the Christian who realizes the power of the cross. But we are presented before God as holy, as blameless, that is to say, without blemish. Isn't that good to know? I'm 33 years old. I still have acne. Drives me nuts. 
presented before him without blemish, not just acne, but in every way, without blemish before the Lord and beyond reproach, which means not only free from blemish, but free from accusation. You, Christian, are free from accusation. And according to Revelation chapter 12, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He loves to accuse you. But you have already been washed. You have already been sanctified. And you will be glorified with Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 says, God is the one who justifies. Who can bring a charge against the elect of God? It's a done work with God. There's no charge that holds any weight with God against you. The enemy would seek to accuse you. Your own flesh would seek to accuse you. Others would seek to accuse you. But the Lord simply declares, under the blood. Under the blood. White as snow. Justified. Innocent. Holy. Blameless. Beyond reproach. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. That's not a work of you. There's a misinterpretation prevalent in the church that we've got to make ourselves holy and blameless. That is not the work of the church. That is the work of the cross. And again, it says in the book of Jude, verse 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. It says there that we will be in the presence of God, blameless with great joy. If you're a Christian, you will not be ashamed on that day. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It is so hard to imagine knowing myself, but that's how powerful the blood is that we'll stand before the holy, inconceivable, incredible God, blameless and with great joy. And that's true in our lives today. Christian, live that life today. There is freedom because of the work of the cross. There is fullness of pleasure in his presence. If you're feeling weighed down with sin today, Peter's advice to you in Acts 3.19 is repent therefore that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. Are you feeling weighed down? Well, then just repent one more time. Come up today and get on your knees and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. And it says in 1 John 1, 9, that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us. To forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Every single bit of it. But are you saved? If you're not saved, you're still in your sins. And you will stand before God with incredible shame and horror at His righteousness. You will be judged and you will not stand in the judgment. You will have chosen to go to hell. You will have chosen that for yourself. God desires that none would perish. It is not His will that you would go to hell. It is His will that you would be saved by the power of the cross. But He is a gentleman. He will not force it upon you. You must choose. And the choice is yours today. If you reject the cross, the blood, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, then you choose for yourself hell. And in that day, when there is horror and weeping and gnashing of teeth and mourning because you will remember this day when you had a choice, an opportunity, in that day, 
there will be despair unspeakable because you will know that you chose hell for yourself. Don't choose it. Don't do it. Repent and be saved today. And the last verse says, once you're saved, you're always saved. Look at the last verse. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. If indeed you continue in the faith, it's not the if you're thinking. It's not here speaking about the opportunity or the possibility of losing salvation. It would read, assuming that you continue in the faith. It's not talking about losing salvation. We are not saved by continuing in the faith. Rather, the evidence that we are saved is that we continue in the faith. We are not saved by continuing in the faith. The evidence that we are saved is that we do continue in the faith. This passage is not talking about the retention of salvation. It is talking about the possession of salvation that is shown by, evidence by, our continual abiding in Christ. Those that don't continue, those that fall away for good, never were saved. And Jesus warned us of them in Luke 18 or Luke 8, excuse me, verse 13. Speaking of the hearts of men, he said, there are some, those on the rocky soil. Those hearts on the rocky soil are those that when they hear, receive the word with joy. But these have no firm root. They believe for a while. And in the time of temptation, they fall away. They didn't continue in the faith because they were never rooted, grounded, established in the faith. When you become grounded in the faith at salvation, you are always grounded in the faith. That word there, establishing grounded, is in the perfect tense in the Greek. It refers to an action that was accomplished in the past and has present results. By the very explanation of the grammar in the passage, when we are grounded in the faith of salvation, it is once and forever done, and it has a continual and present result in our lives. If you have been saved, you are saved. What if I sin? What if I blow it? Don't be silly. That's why he saved you, because you will. It does not denote a loss of salvation. That's why he died. But be sure today that you are saved. Be sure today that when you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You have a better answer than, well, I did some good things or I wasn't that bad. It won't fly before the righteous judge. The only answer will be, well, I've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for me. I received that forgiveness. I'm rooted, grounded, and established in the faith. The Lord saved me. Here I am, blameless with great joy before you. Amen? Thank you, Lord for your wonderful word, and even more for the glorious cross. And Lord, now I just ask that you would draw men and women by your loving kindness. And for anyone here that has not yet been saved, Lord, save them now. If that's you and you know you need to be forgiven of your sins, it's simple. Just ask the Lord. You must deal with sin. You have to confess before him that you're a sinner. You must repent which means turn. Turn from that sinful mind, mindset. Turn from the sinful ways. Turn from them and turn to God. And say, God, forgive me according to what Jesus did upon the cross. At that moment, you are declared holy, blameless, beyond reproach. And you will be 
before the Lord for eternity in heaven with great joy. It seems so simple, but the cross was not easy. Jesus in his humanity endured inexpressible horror upon the cross that we might experience inexpressible joy for eternity. It's a wonderful thing. And Christians, my challenge to you today is are you living in the full glory of the cross? Are you as thankful as you should be this November? Are you as full of joy as your salvation allows?